Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Joining me on the show today are Brian Meacham, Laura Israel, and Nicholas Davidoff. Brian is the Archive and Special Collections Manager at the Yale Film Archive and a regular guest on this show. Uh, Laura is an editor, a longtime filmmaking collaborator of Robert Frank's, and the director of a new feature-length documentary called Don't Blink, Robert Frank. And Nicholas is a journalist and author of a number of books that explore American culture, sports, and identity, including 2013's Collision Low Crossers. He's the author of a 2015 profile of Robert Frank for the New York Times magazine called The Man Who Saw America, and is also a New Haven native and a fellow at Yale's Bradford College. Uh, so, Brian, Laura, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Um, so, Brian, uh, as I like to do whenever you have uh, screenings going on and we have you as a guest on the show, could you tell us a bit about what is happening uh, at the Whitney Humanity Center this weekend? What what movies are you playing? What what else is going on? And, and why are you uh, putting on this event? We're having two related screenings this weekend. Uh, Friday night is uh, Laura's documentary, Don't Blink. Uh, and then Saturday night, we are showing our 35mm print of Robert Frank's feature-length film, Candy Mountain. Um, this all sort of came about more than a year ago, uh, or maybe just about a year ago, when I heard from Nikki that he uh, was interested in screening with Laura all of Robert Frank's uh, film work. And uh, that's when I learned that she was uh, Frank's editor and had made a documentary film about him. And I thought, oh, you know, you just uh, this is an interesting uh, sort of connection that we have since we have this uh, somewhat hard-to-find uh, film, Candy Mountain, which only ever really got a commercial VHS release and hasn't been publicly available. Um, and so I thought this might be a nice uh, way to, to plan a screening where we could bring both a contemporary film and an archival film. So we don't uh, we haven't done a ton of contemporary film programming in the in the, in the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series because it's mostly about uh, older films from our collection. And so this was a nice opportunity to be able to bring together a filmmaker and her new film, and then uh, a film that we already have in the collection by the subject of that documentary. So I, I feel like this is a wonderful opportunity to talk about Robert Frank in a context in which he's probably not spoken about too often, in that he is probably best remembered for his 1958 kind of landmark book of photography, The Americans. Um, but here we're focusing on his work primarily as a filmmaker. But to uh, kind of kick off our conversation about Frank as an, as an artist, as a um, filmmaker and photographer, uh, I, I want to turn to two people in the room who have spent a lot of time with Frank and written about him, and that's Nicholas and Laura. And maybe I'll turn to Nicholas first and then to Laura. Um, Nicholas, okay. when, uh, when was your kind of first encounter with the Americans, with Frank's kind of landmark work of photography. And as you spend a lot of time with him working on this profile for the New York Times magazine, um, not yet moving on to his filmmaking career, but still thinking about that that work of photography, uh, how did your understanding of that work kind of change in relation to his interest as an artist and the power of the images on on you as a writer and observer? Uh, what what make you of the the Americans kind of before and after your experience with Frank? Wow, those are such thoughtful questions. Uh, people like to say of the Americans, I mean, the Americans is one of those indelible and sort of classic American works of art. It's one of, it's, 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 in, it's at the core of the canon, as people would say. And um, so I, I really can't remember the first time I looked at those photographs, but I can tell you that, you know, I'm not a photographer, but that in 
I'm a writer and I responded to the photographs, I think, maybe as a writer, which is to say that there is in them an incredible narrative power. This is one of the great, the Americans represents one of the great American road trips. I mean, it's like Lolita or it's like on the road or something like that. But it's nonfiction. It's true. These are photographs. But they, of course, are the photographs of a great artist with a great creative sensibility who gets in his car in the 1950s and he starts driving around America and he really wants to see the country. And like somebody like Tocqueville, for example, he's a foreign-born person, you know, Frank is Swiss, who comes to the United States and he has sort of an outsider's feeling for the country. And what this enables him to do is to look at the country in maybe ways that a lot of people from the country hadn't been looking at it. And as a result, he creates very, very intimate and private photographs of a very, in a, what was then a very public medium. People really weren't taking photographs of just anybody at that time. They were, the, the, the prominent photographs that you would see were of, you know, they were of generals and presidents and, and, and star athletes and so forth. And here was movie stars. And Robert Frank's idea is if he's going to take a photograph of a movie star, he's going to take a photograph of a starlet who you can just see the, 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 her future, which is going to be a, you know, a, a, a tragic descent. I mean, everything about Frank is about outsiders. It's about what people are like who are everyday people. Uh, and, and you'd think that they're you know, the, the, the great masses, that everybody's the same. And in fact, he's able to achieve great psychological difference in everyone that he sees so, so i mean for me this was as just intensely moving one of the the many great uh, interviews that you do over the course of your profile is you have a quote from the artist ed rusha rusha maybe mispronouncing Ruscha, his last yeah. name in which he he says he he remembers the time when he first saw the americans and he says um Everyone knows where they were when JFK was assassinated. I remember where I was when I first saw the Americans. Um, and Laura, I, I wonder, as someone who has worked with Frank um, on his films, but also, you know, in putting together your documentary on his entire career, this this movie that will be playing in New Haven this upcoming weekend, uh, I wonder how the Americans, um, how the Americans resonates with you today, um, both before and after your time with Frank, and also if that if that quote from Ed Ruscha makes sense to you. Does it make sense to you that looking at these pictures, uh, you would remember it in the same way that you remember when a, a beloved president was assassinated? Well, I think that the great thing about his photograph, one thing that I did really notice, um, there's a section in the film where we do look at all the contact sheets from the Americans, and I sit with Robert and we talk about his process. And it's really interesting because the photograph started to really hit me in a different way um, as soon as he started to describe how he took the photograph and the moment he took the photograph. Um, and um, I mean, the, the photograph said, I think they're very visceral in that way, that it's not something that you can even describe. You just kind of connect with it. And um, so sitting there with him and finding out the process, um, you know, made them, you know, very different to me. Um, and uh I think, in a way, I, that's what I'd like to convey and to help other people to kind of get that a little bit of that context, which I think will you'll be able to look at the photographs in a much different way afterwards. I mean, I didn't realize that he just set out in the morning and he was like a hunter. He hunted for these pictures. I mean, he worked really hard to get them. They look so effortless to me. 
So one one of the that was one thing that really struck me. One of the more telling quotations that I think uh, Frank gives in both your documentary, Laura, and in Nicholas's piece is about his favorite photograph from the Americans. And it's not one, not one of the photographs that is uh, kind of a sidelong glance at someone in a very you know private, intimate moment or where they don't realize that they're being photographed either in the backseat of a car or you know watching a parade. But it's rather this African-American couple that's picnicking on this hill in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the man is looking back and glaring with just, just outright animosity. Frank. And I think from what I understand why Frank picked that one out is because it demonstrates the kind of constant hostility that a photographer encounters because his job is to intrude upon private moments. Uh, and I think as a bit of a contrarian, right. he probably liked that that greeting of hostility. But I think that is telling about, even though there aren't many photographs of his where someone is looking right in the camera and kind of admonishing the person taking the photo, I think his love for that photo mm-hmm. tells a little something about his approach to taking them and that he was really looking for those private private moments. And sometimes people don't, you know, they're a bit wary of revealing those to a camera. And yet he was able to, to get them out. Um, Brian, there's, again, the great moments in Nicholas's and Laura's piece where someone asks um, Robert Frank why he left photography at the top of his game uh, and started, you know, to become a filmmaker. And in, in Laura's uh, documentary, Frank responds, why do you reporters always ask the same question? <laughs> I'm not interested in answering this. Um, but which is, you know, one kind of curmudgeonly way to answer that. But as someone, um, as a film archivist and as someone who has seen and studied many films, I wonder if you could help put Frank as a filmmaker in a bit of a kind of historical and cultural context for us. In 1959, when he started making Pull My Daisy and then his 31 other subsequent films, um, what was what was the kind of landscape of American independent cinema? How new and strange and revolutionary was what Frank was doing? Well, it- it's interesting, so much, you know, Pull My Daisy is fairly readily available. Some of his other films, maybe you can catch here and there, but I think it's, in for some reasons, you know, the, his films aren't really discussed as much because they have been very hard to find and hard hard to hard to see. But I know uh, Laura has worked tirelessly putting together this DVD box set that's now available that does bring uh, many of his films to light. Uh, and they are more available. I know there have been some traveling series that have gone around and some uh, dedicated screening events uh, at Anthology and other places that have that have uh, brought forth a lot of his films for audiences in a way that they weren't when they were originally made. Um, but, I mean, it's certainly Pull My Daisy is is a is kind of a landmark of, of American independent cinema, 1959, you know, very early on in any kind of, you know, arc of, of sort of independent cinema that, I don't know, it, it sort of connects this kind of, you know, beat generation stuff going on with, with all the, the people involved in that film with a kind of New York, um, you know, independent cinema that would then grow into this kind of new American cinema movement in the, in the mid-1960s. This kind of outsider perspective, this kind of emphasis on counterculture, you know, more sort of, not youth-oriented, but certainly... You know, something that was very, very different from, I mean, think about what else was going on in, in American cinema in 1959, and, you know, sort of still studio domination was, was the name of the game. Uh, things like, you know, uh, Breathless and things like that were starting to come into to American cinemas from, from, uh, from other uh, filmmaking centers around the world. But, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of, of Frank's films are very, very personal, very experimental. He'll... 
he will play other people in his films. He'll have other people play him in sort of reenactments of, of events from his own life. A lot of them are extremely personal, having to do with his his longtime second home in, in Nova Scotia. They're, they're interesting in a, in the way that they reflect his kind of, his, you know, photographer's eye for composition has also just a sort of, you know, his outsider perspective that really re- and ends up revealing a lot about subject through this very center- sensitive approach. I, I think I read that uh, Pull My Daisy was also, the, its first screening was a double bill with Shadows, with John Cassavetti's Shadows, which is also yeah. kind of a landmark mm-hmm. uh, kind of beginning of this type of improvisational, non-professional actors. Right. Um, and Nicholas, I'm, I'm also going to ask this this question of you that Frank so uh, is is so repelled by, but you you write about how very few artists um, or very few people who are great at what they do kind of go out at the top of their game. Um, you talk about Marcel Duchamp and uh, I'm blanking on the football player's name, Jim, Jim Brown, Brown, Jim yeah. Brown, and you say that Robert Frank maybe falls into that category. And I wonder, as as someone who, I mean, a good third, maybe half of your article is devoted to the Americans, talking about the impact of that photography, uh, his process of going out and taking those photos and making the book. Um, but you also you know, clearly spent a lot of time uh, with his movies and thinking about him as a filmmaker. Uh, I wonder how you make sense of that transition in Frank's career. And also, how do you see some kind of themes that he was clearly interested in with um, with the Americans, even with you know his obsession with the Beatniks and with Pull My Daisy, kind of moving into his career as a filmmaker. Well, just thinking about something that Brian just said, my parents went to see Pull My Daisy when it was released in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the first time you could see it. I think they saw it at the Harvard Square Theater, and this was. I, I said so. I said when I was working on this, I was, my mother tells me this, and I said, "Well, what'd you think?" And she said. We were amazed. We'd never seen anything like this. It just didn't look like anything else we'd ever seen. And what you were beginning to say about that Ed Ruscha moment, where Ed Ruscha and a lot of other artists respond to the Americans by saying, well, this is, you know, we know where we were when we first saw the, the photographs in the Americans. It's, that is a characteristic um, response for, for different kinds of artists, but it's not a characteristic response for the American public when, the, when, 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 when people first began looking at the photographs. What the photographs in the Americans and what the films have in common just in this way is that people responded to them first with either curiosity or confusion or aversion. Lots of people did. Uh, they didn't look like anything that anybody had ever done before. And for Frank, once he'd made those photographs that are in the Americans... He knew, I mean, he knew that he was at the top of his game. He knew what a great achievement it was. And he didn't want to repeat himself. He was like Miles Davis used to say, I don't want to be a human jukebox. He wanted to do something different. And so the next thing was going to be film. And what kept him at film, according to Frank himself, is that it was difficult for him, that it was it was arduous and it was confusing. And he never, um, he, this is just his personal feeling, he never quite got it right. And the films are, the, the Americans, if we look at the photographs right now, the photographs are such a great achievement that you look at them and you think, oh yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, that, that's what, it's like reading Freud, you know, that's just how it works. That's what the country looks like. But before he took those photographs, people didn't think that way. 
With the films, it's a slightly different response. The films are more, it's a more complicated response for people because they don't seem like any other films. And when I watched those films, more than 30 of them, when Laura and I did our film marathon where we spilled popcorn all over Brian's office, what what my my single greatest, you know, feeling ever, you know, takeaway after I, after I'd seen all these films was that in a funny, strange way, they are, they're all parts of a, of, of a common whole that in a sense, he's making one huge Robert Frank movie and that you can extract little pieces of it in each film of this greater film. And of course that's not completely true, but there is really a shaggy dog quality to those films. It really does feel like something out of Lawrence Stern or something. And I think that, the distinction I'd make between the films and, and the photographs then is that the photographs now have been so influential that they have lots and lots of imitators. There aren't any Frank imitators because if Frank didn't quite figure it out, certainly people are still trying to figure out Frank as a filmmaker. Uh, you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we are talking with an all-star panel about uh, Robert Frank movies. I'm joined by Brian Meacham, uh, Nicholas Davidoff, and Laura Israel. Um, Laura, what Nicholas was just describing and how he feels like, you know, watching over 30 Robert Frank movies that, you know, they really all constitute one big Frank movie, what that sounds to me is like what the auteur, the auteur theory kind of stipulates, is that there are certain filmmaker artists who are kind of constantly returning to certain themes, certain styles, certain approaches to making movies. Um, and I, I was thinking about how you put together your documentary, and there are a number of different ways that you can, you know, make a movie about an artist, especially about a living artist. And most recently, uh, Noah Baumbach came out with a movie called De Palma, in which he sat down with Brian De Palma, and they watched every single one of his movies, and he just kind of narrates. He talks about uh, what he thinks about the movies now, the struggles in making them then, how he feels like he was the true like successor to Hitchcock. But it's kind of a, a filmmaker's approach to understanding his own work as one kind of big, coherent body. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how I mean, I, f I feel like there are some similarities with how you um, put together this movie and how Baumbach approached that and that you have Frank um, with, you know, being interviewed about each of, each of his movies. He's a lot less eager to kind of interpret uh, his movies than De Palma is. But <laughs> but tell me a bit about how you approached making this movie. How did you want to give viewers an impression of the filmmaking career of Robert Frank? Um, well, to begin with, I, I started out just wanting to make a film about Robert as a filmmaker, not as a photographer, because I felt that that would be more valuable to people since they knew a lot less about um, that part of his life. And um, I sat down to talk to him, and he talked about photography and filmmaking interchangeably. So I suddenly realized, first of all, it was going to have to be a much bigger film than I thought. I thought I was making a short, you know, piece. And then the other thing is I realized that it would have to just be about him as a creative artist. And then it couldn't be confined by um, just, a, you know, a technique, whether it be photography, film, writing, or, you know, even the scratching and the painting on his photographs. I mean, all of that had to be part of it. Um, so, uh, I just, um, kind of, the weird thing is that I, I didn't know I was going to make this film. Somebody really convinced me to do it. And then I just happened to ask Robert, um, Hey, you don't think it would be a good idea for me to make a film about you, do you? And he was like, no, no, that would be weird. 
And then he said, you come back tomorrow. And when I went back the next day, he said, let's start next week. So I was sort of thrown into it, um, and I didn't, hadn't done any research. So I did a lot of it just by knowing things in the film, films, in his films, and um, just by instinct almost. So in a way, that was really a good way to do it. Um, and um, the thing is that... Um, uh, one of the things is that uh, I did ask some of those same questions that you see in, in Don't Blink. There's this one set, um, set of interviews where Robert really doesn't want to be interviewed <laughs> because the uh, yeah they keep asking the same questions. And I did ask a couple of those questions in the beginning, but um, I also sort of realized at a certain point we should have activities rather than just pointing the camera at him because he was so con he's so conscious when you have a camera on him that if we're like looking at a book or we're looking at a piece of film or, or going out to shoot photographs, that would be a better way to shoot the film. And actually it was a lot more fun that way and a lot more organic. Um, and I think he appreciated that a lot. We got a lot better footage that way. And um, I think that that gives the film the same kind of raw offhanded feeling that his films have. I mean, luckily, his films do, and his life, do kind of run parallel. So um, it's sort of a good way to tell his story, to make a film about making a film and have the filmmaker's films in it. <laughs> Brian, so you kind of, kind of go down a road and like take these little detours. Brian, on, on the face of it, Candy Mountain is quite an aberration in the filmography of Robert Frank in that it's a feature-length film. It's fiction. Uh, and right. it is a uh, kind of, a, it has a narrative. I mean, it, a somewhat linear narrative. But then if you take a step back and you think about Robert Frank's life, I mean, it's about uh, someone searching out this reclusive artist who left, you know, guitar making at the top of his game uh, to remote Nova Scotia. And then it kind of ends with this big, right. and this big bonfire <laughs> of guitars. And in Laura's documentary, there's even a, a video of Robert Frank kind of at the top of his fame, taking this like drill to his photographs and just destroying his work. <laughs> I'm uh, glad you mentioned that. Um, Brian, I, I wonder if, um, can you tell me a bit about why you picked uh, Candy Mountain or why, why you're playing Candy Mountain here and also how you see this as fitting in within the larger kind of filmography of, of Frank? Right. Well, it, it was really sort of a, uh, a kind of a, a, a matter of not convenience, but sort of coincidence that, uh, that uh, Nikki and Laura came to the Film Study Center at Yale to view all of uh, Robert's films and having found out about her documentary and having wanted to sort of put something together and realizing that, uh, you know, trying to take advantage of the films that we have in our collection, we happen to have this print of Candy Mountain of kind of unknown origin. I'm not exactly sure where it came from. It predated my time uh, at the archive. And uh, it's a print that, um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the film is, you know, in this day and age, nothing is really hard to find. You can find the film on YouTube if you really want to watch it that way, but it has never had a, a decent commercial release. It, frankly, if you really want to see the film, come see it on 35mm, not on YouTube, and uh, it looks great. And um, and so it seemed like Candy Mountain alone might be a hard sell, a 30-year-old movie. I mean, if you're like me and a huge Tom Waits fan, you're going to come out and see this film, but 
other than that, I'm not sure how well, we if might. Well, you're a Joe Strummer fan. Okay, and fine. Dr. John. Yeah, yes. And Leon Redbone. <laughs> right. No, I mean, you don't have to tell me. Um, but yeah, so it just seems like it might be a little bit of a hard sell as a standalone uh, Treasures from the Yale Film Archive event. But to be able to have Laura and Nikki and her wonderful film as a sort of a, a weekend of, of, of these two events together, I think it makes a little bit more sense. And, uh, and it also sort of helps expand kind of our programming and, as I said, into sort of contemporary films and bringing filmmakers, which is something that we've always wanted to do. And, you know, it's tough not to see Candy Mountain as a, a bit of a bookend with Pull My Daisy, too, and that Pull My Daisy features all of these artist friends of his, right? You have Allen Ginsberg, you have um, Jack Kerouac doing the narration, Peter Orlovsky, and then here in Candy Mountain, I'm not sure if he was as close with Tom Waits or Joe Strummer as he probably not as with the Beatniks, but there's something about having, uh, you know, artists and non-professional actors kind of realizing this fictional narrative but in a really kind of playful and goofy way at times and getting towards themes that that uh, Frank has been interested in throughout his career in the kind of figures on the margins of the road you know what America sees uh, as as you're driving by through the windshield did yeah one of the the interesting things about Candy Mountain I would say is that this is his great commercial opportunity. Now, for most people who are making commercial films, this isn't a big commercial film. But in Robert's life, this was the big commercial film. And, you know, one of the things you should know about Laura is, is that lots of people wanted to make a film about Robert Frank. And Robert Frank was really reclusive. Robert Frank is the person who, when he became famous and really coveted by all sorts of people in the New York art world, his response is to go as far away to as remote and isolated part of Canada as he can find. This is someone who really just wants to work. He doesn't want to answer questions about his life. He wants his work to speak for his life so that when Laura's making this film, it is a real that's a real sea change in Robert's life. He's willing to sit back and reflect with somebody else other than his camera about what his life is like. And Candy Mountain represents the subtext of Candy Mountain is, is that it represents Robert before Robert's willing to, you know, s- sit for sit and be filmed by Laura or somebody like me come along and talk to him at great length. This is Robert when Robert is doing something that really Robert doesn't really and on lots of levels doesn't want to do. Ambivalence and anger are a huge part of Robert Frank's career and life and in creative expression. And if you see that film and you look at this film, which he has lots of problems with because he doesn't, you know, this film involves working with other people. Robert Frank didn't want to work with other people. Or if he did, he wanted to work them in his Robert mm-hmm. Frank way. And here he has to be a more collegial, you know, collaborator. And in, in lots of ways, it wasn't going well. So if you know this and you know some of the people who are in the film, like Tom Waits, who he did, who he does know and and, and they get along really well, or Joe Strummer, you know, from The Clash and people like that. There's a whole lot of interesting undercurrent going on in that film, even if it's not anybody's idea of a typical commercial road movie film. You know, oddly enough, he in Candy Mountain, he's also kind of documented the pilgrimages that people make two reclusive figures like Frank that you end your piece in The New York Times with, Nicholas, and that you, you know, usually... This the the pilgrimage in in Candy Mountain is a bit more mercenary in that you have the figure you know looking to make money by finding this artist, but you describe people from traveling all over the world with these kind of inane things, or they they want him to verify that this is a photograph by someone else, or you know they people come out of their way to seek out Robert Frank, and uh, no matter his ambivalence with fame, I think there's something that he finds endearing and heartwarming about people who go to such ends to find someone who means so much of them or is just kind of difficult to find. right well there are two there are two schools of this there are the serious collectors who are in it for the money who robert really you know in lots of levels that he would be averse to that but he's really but i mean what could an artist really want from his work that it would have a great effect and have real meaning for 
people of of every kind of person. And I think that as he grows older, Robert's now in his 90s, he's grown increasingly moved and sympathetic. I, I don't know if, Laura, you tell me if you agree with me, but I think he's grown increasingly moved and affected just by the meaning that his work has for other people, both the photographs and the films. Obviously, Definitely. the photographs, more, 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 they're, they're much more widely accessible. But would you agree, Laura, you think? Yeah, I definitely I agree with that. I think it had a lot to do, timing also has a lot to do with both of us, um, him opening up to me and to you. Um, I kind of feel like, and I think he picked us as much as we picked him because of who we are. You know, I mean, we're both kind of, um, you know, open, very friendly, you know, we have kind of okay sense of humor. We get his sense of humor. <laughs> Which is Speak very dark and, and kind of tricky. <laughs> but um, so I, I only want to also mention one last thing about Candy Mountain um, and Don't Blink and is that we have the same music executive music producer, mm-hmm. Hal Wilner. Mm-hmm. So who people who know who he is as well really know who he is. I mean, he's a very eclectic and very amazing music producer. So we were really happy to have him on our project as well. Laura, uh, Frank has been, in in his personal life, uh, has suffered some very serious and and traumatic uh, kind of tragedies with the kind of early deaths of both of his children. And for someone who makes such personal movies, he's kind of a pioneer of this kind of hybrid memoir movie, these nonfiction personal uh, documentaries. For someone who made a movie like Conversations in Vermont, where he's literally talking with his kids um, in the, I guess, the, the 70s or 80s about how difficult it was for them to grow up with kind of negligent artist parents, um, to see that now after both of his kids uh, have passed away, both in very sudden and tragic circumstances, um, how did you feel that that kind of weight of personal tragedy weighing down as on Frank as an artist and as, as a person today, were, were there certain topics that you found you just couldn't talk about with him or was he um, a bit more willing to, I don't know, talk, talk through some of that suffering with you now that he's had a bit more of a remove? Well, um, I ended up using, I, I mean, he did talk to me about it, but I, I found it's, it's probably much easier to write about it than to film him talking about it because he is very aware of the camera and he's not going to, you know, um, pour out his innermost feelings on camera. So when it did come to those subjects, I used a lot of his work because I feel that it was, he's very brutally honest in his work. And I felt it was much more poignant and much more truthful than, you know, what I could get on camera with him just, you know, telling me. And I felt it was actually, I felt much more interesting to experience it that way. So if you notice in the film, when it really gets to those types of subjects, like really big subjects, dark subjects, it was his work that I used to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and to tell you the truth, that was the most editing, the longest pieces. I mean, we edited those for months, more than any other part of the film. It was really important for me to get that uh, correctly, to represent that in the manner that I I really wanted to, you know, that I felt that it deserved. I mean, maybe Nikki can also talk about it because I think Writing I mean, about it yeah, is, these is are easier. epic tragedies. I mean, losing both of your children, one when she was only 20 yeah. years old and, you know, then 
his his son Pablo, who became you know became ill and then eventually died. Uh, these are these are this is tragedy on a, on this is you, you know these are tragedies on a on an epic scale and nobody looks forward to asking someone about this but it's your job if you're doing the kind of work that yeah. Laura and I are doing where we are, we were attempting to you know sort of document the fullness of someone's life to ask about this not because we wanted to be intrusive or anything I don't think but it's just because this is such a signal part of a person's life and because this person who, as an artist is so so good and so gifted at conveying human feeling and clearly these events which happened at, you know, at a, at a certain midpoint in his artistic career, these are going to have a huge effect on his art. So it's just, it's not gratuitous. It's because you really yeah. want to, you want to know both as a parent for other parents, what this feels like and, and help other people who, who are, you know, there's tragedy all over the world. And this is somebody who understands tragedy, but also it helps you deepen your, your feeling for the art. And Robert Frank is aptly named. Right. He is Frank. And so if you're going to ask him about these things, he's going to tell you what he thinks. Sometimes at this point in his life, he's terse. But I think I always found him to be just completely forthcoming in, in, on any subject. And the more difficult the subject, the more readily so. So in this respect, I thought one of the things that, 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 he, that he grapples with so much is not just grief, but also guilt and regret. And those are huge things. So, human themes that have informed literature and art since the beginning. And I think that, you know, they inform his, his work too. Nicholas, you're, I think the, Oh, go, go ahead. Lauren. His work, I, yeah. When I look at his work, I can see that grief and I can see that regret. And, and I think it, it, it really helps other people as well. I mean, I've gotten so many emails and letters from people saying, I'm so glad that I watched your film because it really helped me because I went through things like the same things Robert did or very similar things that Robert did. And I'm using my art in, in the same way to sort of help me. So I, I think that, you know, there's a, res, you know, a responsibility, but also I, I feel like Robert would want it that way as well. I mean, he, it wouldn't, it just, it wouldn't be right to omit um, something that is so important to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas, your your most recent book uh, is about a very different subject. I'm, I'm reading it right now. It's uh, Collision Low Crossers, and it's about a kind of behind-the-scenes look at, at a whole year or a season in the life of, of the New York Jets. Uh, and as a uh, kind of long-recovering New York Jets fan, I appreciate it from that perspective. But also, uh, I, I was kind of I charged myself with finding some kind of parallel between how you described a figure like uh, Rex Ryan, the, uh, the the kind of boisterous uh, hokey coach of of the New York Jets and and Robert Frank. And I, I think I found a parallel. Let me see if, if this makes any sense to you. And that's in that um, when you describe uh, Ryan kind of watching uh, the 22 different players on the field. You say that unlike most people in this world, he's able to see, you know, 22 different kind of massive bodies moving, you know, either according to or not according to the plan that was devised. And he's able to pick up on the most minute of details uh, on this larger field of pretty chaotic play. And what, uh, what, 
that called to mind for me in your Robert Frank article was when you open with him in Switzerland. He's returned to receive an award, uh, a pretty prestigious award that he's kind of ambivalent about. And you, you described the one photograph he took all day. Um, and it's when he's, I think you're on a train or maybe in a car, and he sees a construction crane in front of a church clock tower. And then he says, this is Switzerland in a nutshell. It's the crane, the clock, the church functional. And you say that's the one photograph you took all day. And I wonder if what, I mean, I'm interested in how you made it from that story of the Jets to here, but also is that something that you see, I don't know, that you find appealing about figures like Ryan and like Frank and that, you know, we often describe artists who we really admire as visionaries. And these people really seem to be that, that they're able to, with an economy of kind of effort and energy expended, they're able to look at and kind of convey pretty remarkable things that uh, most other audiences are maybe not able to see with the naked eye. I think that's so insightful and well said. I think that the real the the, the what's so, most unusual about Robert Frank's photograph is is that at a time when photographs sought following the time life model to have sort of a beginning and an end to have these complete narratives within them, Robert was after a piece of the middle. He was interested not in stories per se. He was interested in sort of emotional truth. And if you look at any of his photographs, and these are just, he's a street photographer. These are, he's, he's, you know, he's a spy with a camera wandering around. And when he would see with people, his just gift is, it's something in his head and in his hands and in his heart. He could look at ordinary people and he could get at something in them that was intensely revealing both of them, but also just more broadly about human feeling. And that kind of insight and that kind of, I mean, you know, for the rest of us, it's a sh- it, there's there's some quality of it being a shame that he didn't take more photographs just because he saw so much in people. He's able to still the world in a way and look into this. There's this great mass of humanity out there, and he can pluck from all this just onrush of humanity that is part of every single day all over this country. He could just sort of walk into lives in the country and look at them. And when he, for example, the couple in San Francisco, when he's looking at them, he loves the photographs because it's one time somebody caught him. Never otherwise in any of the American's photographs did anybody see him taking those pictures. But those people saw him. And so what the photograph there is about is really it's about violation. That's what I think he would say. With Rex Ryan, similarly, I mean, and I have to say that Robert Frank is a great artistic genius and rex ryan is a very he's a particularly gifted defensive football coach there are differences but i think your comparison is apt in the sense that what rex ryan could see is that in a field cluttered with all sorts of large men moving at very high and aberrant rates of speed and motion he could still that and he could see things there that other people couldn't see he could see 22 bodies whereas most people can only see what the guy with the ball is doing and the guy who, who bashes into him so it's that capacity for seeing that I think you're right is is true of both of them. As for why I was interested in both, to me, what Rex Ryan and Robert Frank have in common is that they are both, and, and more generally football and Robert Frank have in common, is that they are both stories in a sense of outsiders, people who come from the fringes or the penumbra of American society and through force of personal skill and ingenuity and also great American institutions find a way towards the center of America and influence it. And that's certainly true for Robert Frank, who is Swiss-born, and he comes to this country without really any money, and he becomes the person who reveals America to America. And for football players, most football players grow up in poverty, they grow up in places all over this country, but they become this through this game and through the subculture that was most interesting to me, the subculture of this game, they become people who it's the most watched phenomenon in America. And I also feel that it's a phenomenon which nobody understands. Most of all me, that's why I really did it. It's because we watch this going on all 
day on Sunday, and these games happen, and everybody's watching, but nobody really go- knows what's going on because there's this secret playbook that's going on, and whether or not we don't know what the plays are, we don't know w- how they're designed, if they worked, anything. So for 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 me, both of them have in common the sort of mystery and secrecy, but this strange ability of certain kinds of people to start out somewhere off in the fringes of America and then become people who in one way or another affect or influence many, many Americans. And these are people who also have to develop incredibly thick skins at certain points and also to be incredibly introspective. And I think that balance is a very difficult one for people to have in order to, you describe in the football locker room, I mean, there's just constant kind of badgering and insulting. And if you can't take uh, a, a, a jab, then that is not the right environment for you. Uh, and I think with, with Frank, as someone who is as immune to praise as he is to criticism, and you really have to inure yourself to what other people are saying in order to go out and take the photographs that you want to take. But on the other end with someone making i mean these are 30 minute kind of memoir movies that he makes these are about introspection these are about kind of looking in and finding what is um, unique about you and kind of common to everyone that people may be interested in in listening and and watching about and i I find that a really fascinating balance that both of these people are able to make i can hear in my mind's ear rex ryan saying nice photograph by frank Um, but uh but the football the football people you know i i I had the americans with me sometimes when i'd show up there because i was you know and the football people were really interested i mean this is a lot of them come from the landscapes that robert frank is photographed i mean the the rural landscapes that he's photographing you know so many football players come from the rural south um but you know i have to say that laura will back me up here that one of robert is both a thick-skinned person but he also loves teasing and if you can't take his teasing, and it can be really harsh, it can be, Robert is really good, as his <laughs> wife June Leaf would say, at being mean. And there are a lot of people who just can't, can't tolerate it. But behind it is a really interesting and puckish sense of humor. And if you tease him back, then you make him really happy. And this is really what, this, this deepens a relationship with Robert. And I think this is certainly true for football players, and this is true on teams. This is just how lots and lots of people, it's kind of an ambiance. This is how people become closer. It's by showing that they're comfortable with each other and comfortable with revealing the things that for some people are sources of discomfort, right? You know, that's where I'd love to go as we wind down our conversation. Over to you, Laura, as someone who has probably spent the most time or um, maybe comparable to to Nicholas, but most time with Frank and have the longest kind of personal and professional relationship with him. Uh, One thing that I noticed about the way that Frank took photographs, at least in your documentary, is that very often he would lift his camera kind of parallel to his face and kind of hold it at shoulder level and take a photo. Now, that wasn't every single time, but I found it fascinating that very often he wasn't taking photographs with the camera to his eye he was kind of trusting his own natural eye and then just lift and now part i think part of the reason why one would do that is to be playful to make sure that your face is still you know unobscured in your in your documentary so people can always see him but i think there's also something about you know being kind of surreptitious you know the, a good way to be noticed taking a photo is to have a camera up to your face uh, and i wonder as you know with that image of him holding a camera to his side and taking a photo as someone who has been been, you know, has worked as an editor with him, who has been a friend, who is now a filmmaker, has made a documentary about him. How has your kind of more personal and professional relationship with Robert Frank changed over the years? And, and how do you see him as, uh, you know, as what Nicholas just described, as, as thick-skinned, as loving teasing, as introspective, uh, as someone who spent a lot of time with him? Uh, what, what can you tell us about that relationship? Um, well, uh, 
first of all, I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote um, by someone, and I can't remember who it is. They called Robert a gunslinger with a camera. So <laughs> I think that's pretty apt. Um, and um, I think that a lot of times when he's holding the camera up like that, uh, he actually really knows what he's shooting. <laughs> but um, And it's, it looks effortless. It looks like he doesn't, but I think he does, actually. Um, but um, there's one part in the film where, you know, and it's funny because it's when we're shooting, when we want to talk about the Rolling Stone. <laughs> and um, he goes and he sits in front of, we're projecting the uh, footage of the that he shot of the Rolling Stones behind him. And he sits in front of it and he says, this is the most hateful footage. <laughs> we all sort of just froze. And that was that moment where we realized, and in, in you know, in um, England they would call it taking the piss. You know, he was he was pushing us to see what we would do, and then we all just like waited a second, and then we all just started laughing, and then I just yelled "cut!" But it wasn't it wasn't like I was a, you know like we were freaked out or anything. It was more like this moment, you know, this sort of tense moment, and then we got it, got over it. And that's the moment that Nikki was talking about. And I had to put it in the film because it was so, it's, it, it also illustrated to me his relationships with the Rolling Stones pretty well. Um, just that like moment, um, where he says it's hateful footage because he really, he just didn't want to talk about the Rolling Stones that day. So he sat in front of the projection <laughs> and I knew that. It should be clear that Robert made a, a really great film about the Rolling Stones, which is not so much about the Rolling Stones on stage, but it's about, what it's like for a rock star when you're not on stage. What's the everything but being on stage? Although the the few scenes that are shot on stage are just are amazing. I mean, it's it's um. It, I, I think it's amazing. It's a wonderful film, and it's never it's been released. It's one of the great unreleased is, films. Yeah, and I mean, it's it, the thing about it is that um, they, I think they wanted him. I mean, I, they wanted him to just shoot a little like a promotional film of them on tour. And he just did what Robert Frank does, which is he just looked at them, you know, in a very critical way and just shot everything they did. Right. <laughs> and and, and for an unseen movie, you know, Laura, was on. you would agree for an unseen movie, it's one of these great American artifacts. I mean, Don DeLillo wrote about it for many pages in the novel Underworld. Yeah. It's 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 uh, the, the movie's called Apologies, Cocksucker Blues. And it's <clears throat> there are all sorts of reasons sometimes why CS blues. sometimes or expletive blues. <laughs> the, uh, so I I have many a more question for this group, but I think that uh, we may have to wait until maybe the the event itself, and you can go and, and ask uh, these two Robert Frank uh, experts about their experiences with them and and their writing and filmmaking. Um, I I want to ask each of you to to give you a second to to plug what it, what it is you want people to to know about maybe the Brian the the time and location of the screenings and Nicholas and and uh, Laura anything you you know anywhere people can learn more about your work, find it, uh, buy it, watch it, all that stuff. So Brian Brian first. Sure. So briefly, uh, tomorrow night Friday uh, at seven p.m. Uh, Laura's documentary, Don't Blink, Robert Frank, will be screening at the Whitney Humanities Center in the auditorium uh, with a conversation between Nikki and Laura afterwards. So please come and stay. And that for, is free? That's all, yeah, everything's free. It's all, well, not everything, but, but these particular <laughs> screenings. Um, and then uh, Saturday night, the 15th, uh, in the same place, in the Whitney Humanities Center auditorium, also at 7 p.m., is a rare 35-millimeter screening of Candy Mountain. And so I encourage uh, people to come to either or both of those screenings this weekend. And Nicholas, where can people find more about what you do? 
Oh, it's around. But the thing I would say is that for people, I think people should really, if, if, you, if you haven't looked through the Americans, you should, this is really something that belongs in, if, if something can be said to belong in every American's library, you should get a cop, paperback copy of the Americans. And also, uh, Robert, if you can find a copy of Robert's other great book, The Lines of My Hand, those are just, they'll just make, they make, looking at those photographs just makes life better and deeper. And Laura, how about you? Anything you'd like to plug at the end of the show? Oh, definitely. Um, our, we, we just came out with the DVD of Don't Blink, Robert Frank, and um, it's not out quite yet, but it's on grasshopperfilms.com, um, and it's also on iTunes. We have a website, don'tblinkrobertfrank.com, and I do agree with Lines of My Hand. I think that's an incredible book. Um, that would be my second book to own other than The American. Well, Brian Meacham, Nicholas Davidoff, Laura Israel, it's been a pleasure to have you all in the studio talking about Robert Frank. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. All right, you you. can find a complete uh, archive of Deep Focus episodes at deepfocusradio.com. And coming up next is Elisa's Culture Cocktail.